Well, after several weeks away, I invite you to turn again back to Genesis. Genesis 14 this morning. Genesis 14. For those of you who are visiting, we're studying through this book. We've had a few weeks break. Some famous man once said, success is the sole earthly judge of right and wrong. Success is the sole earthly judge of right and wrong. And increasingly, that seems to be the prevailing view. We all want to be successful, however we might define that. And if we succeed, we must be doing right. And if we do not succeed, we must be doing wrong. As the man said, success is the sole earthly judge of right and wrong. But do we really want to go down that road? (laughs) Do we really want to agree with that kind of thinking that what's right is whatever succeeds? What's wrong is what doesn't. I doubt it. The quotes from Adolf Hitler. This morning our text presents us a different view of success. A whole different perspective on success. Here Abram certainly seems to have some success, but we'll find that it's not an end in itself, and Far from determining what is right and wrong, even the success must bow to what is right and wrong. Abram's sense of right and wrong will cause him to reject the fruit of his success. Oh yes, this is a different perspective. A completely different perspective on success than we will find in the world around us. Well, Genesis 14 is a difficult text. It's difficult just to read because it's lots of names. So I know you always enjoy when I have to be on the uh, spot and try to read all these names that no one else knows how to read either. But let's read it. I'll read it for you, Genesis 14. At this time, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Birshah, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Simabur, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Siddam, the Salt Sea. For twelve years they had been subject to Ketolaomar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketolaomar and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephaites in Ashtaroth, in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shaveth Kirathim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran near the desert. Then they turned back and went to Enmeshpah, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazar, 
Hazazon, Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Kedolaomar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew, Lot, and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Javet, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he he was a priest, he was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of, your, of a sandal, that, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten, and the share that belongs to the men who went with me. Just two truths this morning. And the first is this. God may grant you worldly success. God may grant you worldly success. That's what he did to Abram. He, God made him successful. Perhaps he will make you successful too. Now before we get into that, let me just review the story told here because it gets lost in all the names and places that we don't know. This is a story about four kings from Mesopotamia, specifically from the area of the Tigris and Euphrates Valley that flows down toward Babylon and what's present-day Iraq. These four kings, it's a story about these four kings going to war against five kings of the cities of the plain, which is an area that's now submerged under water in the south end of the Dead Sea in what we know as modern Israel. Verse 1 gives us kind of that summary that these four kings went to war against these five kings. Here's how the story unfolded. The kings of the five cities of the plain, down in the Dead Sea area, the cities of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela, or Zoar, these kings were subjects of King Kedolaomar, who was from over in Mesopotamia. 
For 12 years, they faithfully paid their taxes and acted like good citizens subject to this other king. But in the 13th year, they said, enough. We're not paying anymore. They wanted their independence, and they refused to pay tribute. And so in the 14th year, King Kedulaomar, together with three of his Mesopotamian allies, other kings, came to subdue them by force. And subdue they did. What we have traced here is the march of these four kings and their army. They marched up the Tigris and Euphrates Valley, a big trade route that went to the west-northwest. And then they proceeded south on uh, what was known as the King's Highway. And this is not the trade route that goes over along the coast toward Egypt. But this one goes to the east of the Sea of Galilee, to the east of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea, through the hill country. And what we have recorded in verses 5 and 6 is the list of all these people that they defeated, one after another after another, as they came down that southward trek all the way to the desert. And when they reached the desert, now south of the, of the cities of the plain, when they reached the desert, they then came back up to the area of Kadesh, and they defeated the Amorites and the Amalekites. You see what they've done? They have circled these rebellious kings of the plain, and they have defeated all their possible allies, leaving no one to come to their aid. Finally, according to verses 8 and 9, the battle lines are drawn in the valley of Sidim, the king's valley, it was called, and the war raged. Came King Kedolamar and his allies against the cities of the plain, four kings against five. Oh, but the battle didn't take long. The people of the cities of the plains were quickly put flight and were told, perhaps even somewhat humorously, that as they did, the men fell into the tar pits that were everywhere in the area, and only some escaped to the hills. The rebellious kings of the plain were soundly defeated, and King Kedolaomar and his friends captured all the goods and all the food and all the prisoners they wanted and headed back north to go home. Just as an aside here, this first account of warfare in the Bible ends up reinforcing the Bible's reliability. For many years we've known almost nothing about these names and places. And so for years critics have been absolutely, absolutely certain that this was not a historical account. None of these people ever suggested, ever lived, none of these uh, places ever existed. In fact, this wasn't about Abraham 2,000 years B.C. This came 1,000 years after Moses, this story, and it was tried some myth to pump up the, uh, the image of Abraham. But between 1974 and 1976, archaeologists uncovered 20,000 cuneiform tablets in an ancient city called Ebla. And in those tablets, they have things that confirm that this is, in fact, history that happened between 2,000 and 2,500 years B.C. Specifically, the five cities of the plain are named in order in the tablets from Ebla. Don't take on the Holy Scriptures. You'll make a fool of yourself. <laughs> 
Anyway, that's an aside. So Omar defeated the five kings and he headed home. That would be the end of the story. Some ancient rivalry with some international situation that we know or care nothing about, except that verse 12 says they also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Someone who had escaped came and told Abram about Lot's capture, and so Abram went into action. He gathered the men of his household, some 318 men already trained, and taking along some Canaanite friends, Mamre and his brother Eschol and Aner, Abram began to pursue this mighty king, this alliance of kings and their, and their troops. When he caught up with them on their way home, Abraham divided his little band into, into a two and he attacked them at night. They were so surprised that Abram was able to drive them all the way north past Damascus until finally, as they're fleeing for home, Abram collects all the prisoners and all the spoils of war that they had captured and heads back home himself. He had saved the day. Abraham had been granted worldly success, no doubt about it. The question for us is, so what? How are we to see all of this? Uh, what's going on here? Why did God give us that account? Well, I think there's some key pieces of information that help us to think about it and to understand what's going on here. First of all, notice the verses just before this. Now, the fact that it's been four or five weeks since we were in Genesis, we might miss this connection. But if we go back just a few verses, just immediately preceding chapter 14, go back to verse 14 of chapter 13, and let's read what we find there. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and the breadth of this land, for I am giving it to you. These verses. The Lord spoke to Abraham after Lot had picked the nicest portion, the cities of the plain, the fertile valley for himself, the Lord spoke to Abram and made a promise. And he said, Abram, look as far as you can see in every direction. I'm going to give it all to you. In other words, the territory that is immediately then fought over by Ketelomar and his friends belongs to Abraham as far as God's promise is concerned. And Abraham knew that. God told him. He had every right to exercise his power there. Oh, but wait, before we go too far with that, there's another piece of information for us to think about. Look way back to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, where we have some discussion of Abram. Hebrews chapter 11, look at verses 9 and 10. Hebrews 11, 9 and 10. Talks about Abram's life there. In the same time frame. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, 
like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Here we're reminded that in spite of the fact that God had promised all of that land to Abram, Abram never owned one square foot of it until he bought a plot to bury his wife. That's all. God had given it all to him, but he never owned any of it. Oh, but here in chapter 14, an account piled right on top of the promise of God to give him the whole land. God gives Abram a taste of the success. A taste of the victory that his descendants will someday know in this place. Lest anyone think God's promises were just empty God talk. God granted Abram worldly success as a sign that he would keep his promises. Does that mean God promises to always make Abram successful or always make us successful or always make people of faith successful? Well, yes and no. <laughs> yes, God always keeps his promise, but no, it doesn't always look like success, does it? If you're still in Hebrews 11, notice the contrast this chapter that's talking about the great examples of faith, notice the contrast between verses 35, 33 to 35 and verses 35 to 40. Let me read. Look at verse 33. Talking about great people of faith who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign enemies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Victories of faith. Great success in this world. By faith they did all that. Middle of the verse. Next word. Others were tortured, refused to be released, so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Does faith look like success? Or does faith look like faithfulness in the midst of failure? Yes. Sometimes one, sometimes the other. God always keeps his promises. God's people are always to walk by faith. And sometimes it will look very successful in this world. And sometimes it will look like utter defeat. And the two are butted right up against one another in Hebrews 11. 
Oh, you see, this teaches us how to view success. We have great promises from God. He promises his care. He promises to supply our needs. He makes promises concerning our children. He promises to build his church. But like Abram, we live as strangers and aliens in this world. Now, sometimes God gives us a taste of the coming victory, the total success, and sometimes... He keeps us faithful through failure after failure after failure. It doesn't matter, really. It is God who grants or declines to grant worldly success. Our job is faithfulness. Well, I challenge you concerning what you expect from God and how you receive what he gives. You see, you don't demand success in this world. That's God's business. He may give it, he may not. You're called to be faithful. But on the other hand, we don't assume that we will not have success in this world, for God may grant us more success than we ever imagined. He may give us great military success, as he did to Abraham. There are things to fight for. God has granted military success. He may make us rich, as he made Abraham rich. Abraham was a wealthy man. There's nothing in the Bible against being prosperous. He may give us great influence, as he gave Abraham. The Bible's full of men of great influence who exercise great leadership. You see, God has promised his people the whole world. He, someday he will give us everything, for he made us joint heirs with Christ and promises that we will rule with him someday. So we ought not be surprised even though we live as strangers and aliens, if sometimes he allows us to taste of that success. Sometimes God may grant you worldly success. Oh, but when he does, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Which brings us to the second point, the second truth we need to learn from this passage. That's this. You owe allegiance to Christ alone. You owe allegiance to Christ alone. God may grant you great worldly success, but you owe allegiance to Christ alone. We Christians often think and talk about how times of hardship and trial test our faith. for They tempt us to be unfaithful. We especially pray for people who are going through times of trouble. Pray that they will have strength to persevere through all the trouble. And that's a biblical thing to do. But might I suggest that success is an even greater test of our faith. Times of prosperity will often turn us away from the Lord much more quickly than times of trouble. And so here in the second part of this passage, verses 17 down to the end of the chapter, Abram, returning victorious from his resounding defeat of the plundering kings, now faces the real test of his faith. For as he returns, Abram is met by two kings, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. Two kings. They're a study in contrast. They could hardly be more different. And, and what they each offer Abram is quite different too. It's as different as day and night. First of all, he's met by the king of Sodom. According to verse 2, the king of Sodom's name was Berah, unless he was one of the ones that fell in the tar pits, and then this is his successor, I guess. 
What he stood for is quite obvious, for he was the king of Sodom. Sodom already was known, as we saw earlier, already was known to be the epitome of wickedness and debauchery. This king of Sodom comes out wanting to cut a deal with Abram. He's no friend of Abram. He has no kind words for Abram. He wants to cut a deal. Here's his deal. Okay, Abram, you take the wealth. Give me back my people. Actually, by law, everything would, have, would belong to Abram. He's the liberating force. He sees the spoils. They're his. This man's just trying to make a political deal with Abram. Trying to get what he can from him. But Abram is also met by another king, the king of Salem. His name is Melchizedek. Salem actually is the city that was, we later know as Jerusalem. Jerusalem, that's the king of Salem or Jerusalem. We can tell something about Melchizedek by the meaning of his name. The title king of Salem means king of peace. And the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Here's one who's the king of peace, he's the king of righteousness. And this Melchizedek proved to be a very important figure later in the scriptures. That's a whole subject of its own. But David speaks of the Messiah coming to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who was not only a king, but was a priest. And Hebrews 7 makes it clear that this Melchizedek was a forerunner of Christ, both as this priest brings us to God and a king representing God's kingship and rule over us. So it is clear that the Melchizedek that Abram meets here represents none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Melchizedek represents God to Abram. And so he comes and he first blesses Abram in God's name, first by giving him refreshing bread and wine elements depicting communion with the Lord even to this day in our celebration of the supper. And then he blesses him, blesses Abram in the name of God, and then he blesses God who gave Abram the victory. We find that in verses 19 and 20. Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Now these two kings present Abram quite a contrast in the choices of which way he will go. Here he must decide how he will respond to the success which he has had. This choice is without a doubt a test of his faith. To put it simply, here's the question, which would you take? Words of blessing from a man who is God's servant or great riches from a pagan king? Your choice. Words of blessing or great riches, which would you take? <laughs> Think about it. The king of Sodom represented a tremendous opportunity for Abram. All the kings of the whole area had been defeated by Kedolaomar. And then Abram had defeated him. And now everything is Abram's. Just like God promised, right? The whole world lies at my fingertips. And the king of Sodom, Sodom presents an opportunity to build bridges, political bridges to foster goodwill. He can release the captives and make them beholding to him because he's so good to deliver them and liberate them. And at the same time, he can keep all the money and be a wealthy man with great political alliances and great power. Abraham can be both wealthy and popular without so much as one competitor. 
Or, on the other hand, Melchizedek is here, king of Salem, offering quite a different road. Abraham can humble himself and acknowledge that the victory wasn't his, it was the Lord's. He can acknowledge that for all of his great prowess and his great skill and his great determination, his great faith to pursue this matter, that in fact he's in the presence of one greater than him, one who deserves the honor and he can pay him a tithe of everything. Abraham could give back both the money and the people Abandoning all political advantage in this situation, he could go back living in a tent over near the trees of Mamre, an alien and stranger in the very land God had promised him. Two very different roads. Well, you know what he did. Look at verse 22. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high creator of heaven and earth and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a thong of a sandal so that you will never be able to say I made Abram rich. You see what the issue is that Abram saw? Abram understood that this was a very seductive thing. But it was a matter of allegiance. There's nothing wrong with the money. But Abram could not, he would not compromise his allegiance to and his faith in the promises of God as his absolutely only hope. Dr. Jim Boyce puts it this way, Abram saw it as an attempt by Berah to gain for himself some of the glory for Abram's success, which would mean giving some of God's glory to a worldly man. Abram knew that if he kept the goods of Sodom and the other cities of the plain, he would never thereafter be able to say that his sole dependence and the sole source of blessing was God. The king of Sodom would say, sure, sure, that's what religious people say. But the real reason Abraham has prospered is that I let him keep my possessions. And so Abraham, in faith, rejected any arrangement with Sodom. Instead, he held fast to the promises of God. He didn't need Sodom's wealth. He had the word of his God. He reaffirmed his allegiance to the Lord. I have raised my hand to the Lord. I have taken an oath, he says. And he paid the tithe, homie, to Melchizedek, God's servant. Abraham knew he owed allegiance to the Lord alone. Dear folks, you and I are no different than Abram. And the world is just still just as seductive. Even the blessings of God, the successes he grants us, become an occasion for compromise. For the world always calls on us to trade on our success, to cash in on what God has given and use it for own advantage. The world is always there not only to tell us how to gain the advantage, but to get their piece of the action too. But the one who stands before us, inviting us to humble ourselves, is not merely the ancient Melchizedek, the king of peace, the king of righteousness, the priest of God. It is the one rep represented by Melchizedek, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
And he calls us to acknowledge that everything we have, we have only by the grace of God. He calls us to bow before him and honor him with all that we have. He calls us to renounce all allegiances with the world and to rest in his promise. Yes, that will leave us like Abraham living as a stranger and an alien in the world, but this is the way of faith, the way of covenant faithfulness, which will ultimately inherit the earth. We owe allegiance to Christ, period. This morning I encourage you to take a look, take stock of your allegiance to Christ. Has your material wealth weakened your resolve to follow Christ? Has it made your commitment soft? Has it entangled you so that you are no longer free to follow him? Then get rid of it. You owe allegiance to Christ and him alone. Has your popularity, your reputation compromised your allegiance? Are you now so concerned that men think well of you that you hedge on your obedience to Christ? Has radical discipleship become too risky because it might mar your image that you've worked so hard to develop? You see, when everyone's telling you how great you are, it's hard to humble yourself in sackcloth and ashes on your knees, isn't it? But we have nothing but the grace of God in Christ. And our allegiance is owed to Him and Him alone. Or has our worldly success spoiled our faith? It's easy to cry out to God when you're desperate, but some of us haven't felt desperate for years. We work so hard to have it all together and protect ourselves from any desperate straits. And the more self-sufficient we become, the less grace we feel like we need. Our desperate need for God tends to fade and get tamed. Well, if that's you, I would remind you of the exhortation of the living Christ Jesus to the church in Laodicea who had that kind of a problem. The Lord warns, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, the Lord says. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, Jesus says. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him. And he with me. You see what Jesus called them to and calls us to? Single-minded devotion to himself that recognizes that we owe allegiance to Christ Jesus and him alone. What a story. What a story of faith. By faith, Abraham pursued an overwhelming army to deliver his relatives, and he was powerful in the world. God granted him success. But immediately thereafter, by faith, 
Abraham saw through the seductive schemes and kept himself separate from the world. And that's how we must live too. Sometimes God grants us great worldly success, but we always owe allegiance to Christ Jesus alone. By faith, Abraham saw that there was more to life than what could be seen with his eyes. And by faith, he held out for the unseen, for the promise of God, which he did not yet have in his hand. That reminds me of a song that I love, written by the late Rich Mullins. It's entitled, If I Stand. Here Rich, obviously, sings of a different time and place. He sings of his time and place, not Abram's time and place. But here he, like Abram, sees beyond what you can see and rests in the gracious promise of God. Let me read you the words as we close. He sings... There's more that rises in the morning than the sun. And more that shines in the night than just the moon. There's more than just this fire here that keeps me warm in a shelter that is larger than this room. And there's a loyalty that is deeper than mere sentiment. And a music higher than the songs that I can sing. The stuff of earth competes for the allegiance I owe only to the giver of all good things. Oh, there's more that dances on the prairies than the wind. More that pulses in the ocean than the tide. There's a love that's fiercer than the love between friends. More gentle than a mother's when her baby's at her side. And there's a loyalty that is deeper than mere sentiment. And a music that's higher than the songs I can sing. The stuff of earth competes for the allegiance I owe only to the giver of all good things. So if I stand, let me stand on the promise that you will pull me through. And if I can't, let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you. And if I sing, let me sing for joy that has borne in me these songs. And if I weep, let it be as a man who is longing for his home. By faith, Abram made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for lessons in faith. Oh, Lord, we don't know how to handle success. We don't know how to handle failure. We don't know how to live as victors. We don't know how to live as strangers and aliens. Lord, we're so poor at seeing through the world's seductive schemes. So poor at seeing the unseen, holding fast, the promise and not being carried away by the stuff of earth. Thank you for lessons in faith. Teach us well. Guard our hearts. We acknowledge our allegiance belongs to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.